Hi, Japan. I'm Frank Ling. And from Hi, I'm in Japan. I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Croc Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up in today's show, Singapore and the flu epidemic. In addition, we'll be joined by Sue Van Hook. We'll talk about fungi. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the world famous question of the week. Coming right up here on the Croc Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty good. It sounds like we're in the same room. It's amazing. I am I would almost guess that uh, we would, in fact, be in the same room if I were in Japan. Oh, wait a minute. I am in Japan. <laughs> yes. Welcome to the land. <laughs> the land of the rising sun, where the sushi is fresh and the octopus is smelly. <laughs> like uh, feet, right? <laughs> it's vinegar. <laughs> so I heard uh, coming to Japan was the closest way to go back to U.S. from Singapore, right? This is what they tell me. And it's an interesting route uh, coming back from Singapore, going to Singapore. Wow. And is, is that the place where East really meets West? It's where humidity meets unbearable heat, I think, there. Okay, so it's perpetual summer there. Uh, yes. Uh, okay. I heard the students work very hard because of that, right? <laughs> well, there's nothing else to do except shop. So. <laughs> what do you think about Singapore science? Uh, it's kind of interesting because there was an article recently in Edition of Nature which talks about the funding of science in Singapore, which up until lately had been quite good. Uh, so the government had been pouring lots and lots of money into science in Singapore, mm-hmm. but as of late, they wanted to start to see a return on their investment. And this article in the recent edition of Nature talks about how now the funding going into science is wanting the research to be focused more in terms of research that has some application tied to it. Okay, so they don't want to do blue sky research where it's just simply curiosity driven. Well, I mean, it's hard to blame them. I mean, certainly they have their needs probably have to be more focused given the size of their economy. Mm -hmm. So they want to see things from the money that's being spent on research. Results. Yeah. I didn't get into science to get results. Somebody should explain that to them. I came in for the free cookies. <laughs> I thought it was the pizza. Oh, okay. But if you have a good idea for, like, laser-powered mousetrap or something, Singapore is the place to go to get it funded. And if you want to know more information about this, it's editorial in the recent edition of Nature. Okay. Our favorite British journal. <laughs> Alright, so uh, it's that time of the year again, huh? The time of the year when all the babies come out and play tiddlywinks. Oh, you have one on the way? (laughs) (laughs) Well, not as far as I know, but... Okay. Yeah. We're, I guess, in the middle of December right now, and flu season is about to start. Ah, well, I was hoping to get the flu for Christmas, so that would be a nice gift. Oh, you mean extra few days away from the lab? (laughs) Well, I was hoping to cultivate it in the lab. Yes, and as you know, flu is one of the deadliest diseases, killers out there. Uh, We've had a pandemic back in uh, 1918, uh, the so-called Spanish flu. And then lately there's been certain mutations of the H1N1 and the swine flu where uh, the proteins change significantly enough that when it jumps from animal to humans, sometimes it's basically not controllable. 
Right. I mean, just mutates so rapidly that the vaccines that we have are unable to control it. Right. And so there's actually a lot of money being poured to find a cure, but we still haven't found it. But it looks like a couple of interesting findings lately is that one of them shows that they believe the main indicator of whether flu is going to become virulent or not is the amount of change you get in its hemagglutinin protein, I hope I pronounced it correctly, that seems to have the largest effect in terms of whether it's going to become a pandemic or not. So this is some kind of code protein on the virus binds, or the blood vessels some, cells together. Probably. Right. That's one theory, but the other development is sort of more on the social side. So mm-hmm. this story actually comes from our favorite journal. It's been so long since uh, I've heard from this. Hey, in Japanese, it's pinasu. <laughs> in any language, it's a... Yes, anyways. So there was a recent study, and it showed using students that 10 feet is about the approximate distance in which droplets come from speaking or from sneezing uh-huh. can be carried to transmit the virus. And so sort of like a social networking study where they tagged the students what kind of interactions they had with other students throughout the day and the distances they maintained. I see. And the idea is to use this result to develop strategies for helping to slow down or even to you know not hit the tipping point in terms of right. having a pandemic or not so if there's a uh, minimum distance that we can know that would say for example have a drastic reduction then we can design either uh, some sort of queue or some sort of a protocol that when students go to classes they won't uh-huh. spread it so easily how about an alarm system that goes off when you're getting too close? I mean, I, th- I think we certainly violated that distance requirement in the subway. It was packed. <laughs> yeah, so what, what do you think about the Japanese subway? <laughs> <laughs> Tiring, especially when the subway does not move. Yeah, well... I, I got to know my fellow man quite well, so I, I have to thank you, thank you and, and the Japanese, you know, allowing me to share in that experience. Doesn't happen every day, or I mean, most people don't experience every day, but it does happen uh, every once in a while. <laughs> Well, the other thing I noticed wandering around here in Japan was that a lot of people wear the uh, the surgical face masks. And yes. presumably that's also to stop the spread of uh, disease. Well, right now it's considered basically public etiquette to uh-huh. have a mask if you think or you are having a cold. Oh, really? The research shows that masks are actually not very good at preventing infections. You can still get them. Uh-huh. But it seems to slow down, you know, when you sneeze or when you talk, the droplets that come out of your mouth or nose. So... In that sense, it's more of like your responsibility to prevent others from getting it if you I can. See. I see. So, yeah, if you think you're coming down with a cold, then put it on. And I guess if it slows it down, then I guess the minimum distance uh, decreases. And Probably. Closer, yeah. <laughs> so, not just chewing big red can get you close. Uh-huh. What else did you find interesting in Japan? Did you have a chance to look at any of the academia or research I, I was uh, I was quite impressed by uh, visiting uh, University of Tokyo here. I, I have to give a, a shout out to my host, uh, Professor Yasui, uh, in the Department of Otolaryngology here, uh, who uh, was a gracious host and um, uh, showed me around the campus and uh, his group. So thank you very much to him and his group for, um, for hosting my visit. And of course, I was quite impressed by the academics going on here, and certainly the campus and the, the country is very beautiful. So kudos to you all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you enjoyed it, and I'm sure you're welcome to come back anytime. Uh, uh, domo arigato. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And so that last story comes from our very favorite journal. Oh, well, how can you... <laughs> the Proceedings? Of the National... Academies? Of Sciences. P-N-A-S. Hey, we got to synchronize. <laughs> it's easy when you're in the same room. <laughs> all right. And uh, I guess that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science. Uh, in a few moments, Miss Sue Van Hick will join us to talk about fungi and novel applications of moles.
welcome back to the program. Joining us here is our very special guest today, Sue Van Hook from Ecovative, and she's going to tell us a little bit about the wonders of fungi. Ms. Van Hook, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Glad to be here. So um, your title is, is Chief Mycologist. Uh, what exactly does that entail? So a mycologist is someone who studies fungi. And so I have been with the company since, since its early inception, um, concentrating on using nature as a model uh, to find species of fungi that um, we can use for um, making composite uh, materials, biodegradable composite materials. In a popular mind, most of us think of fungi as, for example, mushrooms or uh, yeast for making wine. Well, what exactly is a fungi? It's not exactly a plant, it's not an animal. Uh, how, what, how do you classify them? So the fungi make up an entire kingdom, the, the mycota, and we used to study them in botany departments and plant biology departments, um, thinking that they were more related to plants because they do reproduce by spores. Um, however, since we've done more DNA analyses, we've found out that indeed fungi are really more closely related to animals. So that it puts them sort of in a very interesting place. We know that they're very, very old, um, some of the first life to evolve after bacteria on the planet. And they basically have three roles in our environment. One role is as a decomposer. Uh, we call them nature's recyclers. And so they're very important in breaking down uh, leaf litter, twigs, carcasses that end up on the forest floors. The second role is as a parasite. Um, so they gain their nutrition by parasitizing other organisms, including humans. And the third role they have in the environment is a mutualistic role. So we know that they can share their carbon source. And very early on in evolutionary time, the aquatic fungi teamed up with aquatic algae and then were able to move on to land as lichens, which are a symbiosis between fungus and alga. We now know that almost every plant um, on the earth, 95 to 99% of them, we estimate, have symbiotic fungi associated with their roots as well. So there's a partnership going on there. We call those fungi the mycorrhizal fungi. Well, that's very fascinating. And specifically, what kind of fungi do you work with? So we use the fungi that have the role of decomposition in nature. And um, we're using these because we're combining them with agricultural waste products, um, such as the hulls or um, pods of various crops. Uh, because these fungi can break down cellulose and lignin, lignin being the harder material that um, makes up wood in trees. Um, and we know that fungi are the only organisms on the planet, with the exception of a few species of bacteria, that can break down um, this, this polymer called lignin. So we are using those properties of these decomposers to combine with agricultural waste products to make up a new um, composite material that's biodegradable. 
Okay, and this is what brings you to the work that evocative is working on, right? Yeah, so evocative is it's is an existing term, and a lot of people pronounce our name that way, but it's actually ecovative, and and many people make this mistake. Um, okay, I apologize for that. So we made up the name ecovative, coming off of innovative, and just use ecology as our. Um, our model. Well, let me tell you a little bit about the the origin of Ecovative Design. In 2007, there were two senior students at Rensselaer Polytech Institute in Troy, New York, and they were in a class called the Inventor's Studio with uh, Bert Swerzy. And their assignment was to come up with a new sustainable building product. So Eben Baer, the CEO of Ecovative, and Gavin McIntyre, the chief scientist here, um, had observed in nature the tenacity of fungal mycelium, which are the long thread-like cells in the soil or in the tree bark um, that are the vegetative state of the fungus. And they had observed the tenacity of um, the fungal mycelium at, uh, uh, growing on wood chips and just made a mental note. And so when they had this assignment, they thought, you know, that, that, fu- that fungus is gluing together those wood chips out there in the wood chip pile. Let's see what we can do with this. And so they took that principle and very haphazardly, really, um, combined um, a a carbohydrate base with uh, water and um, some some perlite to hold the water and, and some spores of a fungus that they ordered online. And lo and behold, it grew into something. Uh, it grew into a sheet of mycelium on a cookie tray. And they began working with this, uh, dried it first, and then found out that it had very high insulating values. Um, it also uh, was completely fire retardant, um, couldn't burn. And so um, and it was very lightweight. So they came up with their first product that is called Green Solate um, as a building insulation. From there, we were able to really put that on hold because of the slump in the in the housing market, in the building market, and focus on our newest product called EcoCradle, which is a biodegradable packaging buffer. And here we're able to um, use agricultural waste products that are regionally based so we keep our carbon footprint low and combine them with the correct species of fungi from the region as well and grow up um, packaging buffers in the various shapes that you find styrofoam packaging comes in to buffer things in the mail. Um, The interesting part of this is that styrofoam has a life cycle that lasts thousands of years, especially in a non-oxygenated landfill environment, or even if incinerated, it releases over 90 uh, hazardous chemicals into the environment. So here we're using something that lasts thousands of years for shipping a product that only is going to be in the mail a few weeks at most. So it's a a very, really an unwise solution to uh, a sustainable way of shipping things. Um, Our product, on the other hand, is designed to last a few weeks, although it will last much longer and can be reused in many different ways. But it can go, once you receive your package in the mail, it can go right into the compost. It can go as mulch in your garden. It can be reused in many ways. And um, it also could be going into a landfill and would cause no harm there. So I'm just curious about the safety factor. Um, Molds, which are from our fungi, 
are often the culprits in toxins found within the walls of buildings. Do these materials have toxicity or are they completely safe? So that's a very good question. And obviously very many people are are, um, terribly afraid of um, sick building syndrome caused by black molds. So the difference here is that we are using the vegetative state. In the vegetative state, the organism does not uh, spoilate. And so that is the difference. So we are, we are killing the, the mycelium of the fungus um, in uh, drying the product so that we're actually, the organism is no longer uh, biologically active and cannot spoilate um, because these are, are non-mold-producing uh, species that we're using. I see. To build these molds, how long does it take? Um, so that's fun. It takes five to seven days. Okay, that's very fast. Yeah, it's very fast, and it requires no light, requires no um, additional heat. Um, so they really are just growing at room temperature in dark. And so the energy, the embodied energy is very low in this product. And in terms of the feedstock, um, is it any type of organic material you can use, or is it specifically uh, wood or grains? There are some fungi that are very much generalists and can grow on anything imaginable, really. Um, But we can tailor the species to the feedstock. You know, our first year, we spent a lot of time testing that, is which species grew best on which feedstocks um, with what other ingredients combined. And um, so there really is a lot of flexibility there and a lot of potential to incorporate new feedstocks as they might change. Okay, so it could work around the world then? Yes, absolutely. The idea is that this would be regionally based technology that we can export to any region of the world. And, you know, if you're in Asia, we would use rice holes. If you're in um, in the Northeast in the United States, we would use buckwheat holes or soybean holes. If you're um, in the South, we would use cotton gin trash or peanut holes. So we've tested a lot of different materials, and there are more to be tested, for sure. But yeah, basically, you just need a carbohydrate source for the fungus to be happy. Okay, so presumably you can also recycle paper with this then, huh? We've actually tried that. We've tried shredded office paper. It grows quite well. <laughs> Well, it's been a very fascinating conversation. Ms. Van Hook, are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself or the work you're doing? Well, I guess um, what I'd just like to say is that our philosophy is cradle to cradle. So we're trying to to make temporary products that come from the earth and and are returned to the earth in a short time frame. Um, We're also a triple bottom line company where we are economically viable, environmentally sound, and socially responsible. we're very excited. We have our first customer that announced last June, Steelcase, which makes office furniture, and we have been they have been using our Eco Cradle product since June, um, and have completely replaced their um, styrofoam packaging with our, our biological product. So we're very excited about that, and we have many other customers in the wings. Um, our in our third year here, we have moved to a larger facility. Have constructed and designed our own assembly line and are scaled up to um, producing. So this is the next phase for us is to really be able to move this technology out into the world and um, have regionally based manufacturing that creates jobs in in, uh, all areas. Great. Ms. Van Hook, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. And we're just talking to Susan Van Hook, Chief Mycologist at Ecovated Designs. We talked about the science of fungi and ideas for sustainable design. 
In a few moments, join us for the Grokotron 5000 and the world famous question of the week. So stay right here. Well, welcome back to the program. Uh, Miss Van Hook has kindly agreed to join us on this week's Grokatron 2000, the computer formerly known as Deep Blue. And this week's topic is Name That Fungi. Um, and I'm going to give you five different subjects here and tell us, um, you know, what kind of fungi pops into your head. All right. Um, subject number one, the American Idol TV show. They are a puffball type of fungus that produces a beautiful star around the puffing sac. Ah, interesting. All right. Uh, subject number two, Georgia Pacific, which makes number. <laughs> um, root rots. And what exactly are root rots? Uh, root rots are fungi that... Um, spread through monoculture forests very quickly and do them in. Subject number three, styrofoam plastic. Well, I have to just say that, I can't tell you the name of our fungus, but I have to just say that Ecovative Designs fungus. Okay. Um, subject number four, former president of the United States, George W. Bush. The slime mold. <laughs> I, I guess the answer is pretty obvious there. Yeah. And... Um, Finally, subject number five, Star Wars character Yoda. That would be the green, slimy stinkhorn. Okay, and it's green and slimy? It is. And, and smelly, but I don't know about Yoda being smelly. Okay, he is wise, though. <laughs> All right, uh, Ms. Manhook, thank you so much for joining us on this week's Grokatron 2000. You're welcome. All right, and now it's uh, time for the world-famous question of the week, and uh, we're here in Tokyo with, oddly enough, the Tokyo Kid. Tokyo, how are you doing? Yes, thank you, uh, Professor Dr. Charles Lee. Well, thank you very much. I mean, it's uh, it's great to be in Tokyo with the Tokyo Kid, and we have amazing questions uh, for you about science in Tokyo. Yes, it's uh, certainly a very big honor to have you here in our presence again. Well, it's really an honor to be in the land of cherry blossoms, and I've always wondered, why do these cherry blossoms bloom all at once? 
ah, the cherry blossom, it's very beautiful, and uh, of course, we think it's uh, so natural, but uh, actually, we Japanese have actually been manipulating them. Oh, really? Because uh, many years ago, they found a very beautiful cherry blossom tree, and they decided to clone it. So it's a clone army. The most common blossoms are uh, a derivative of this one plant. Oh. There's a few others too, but that's the reason why they'll come in spots where the blossoms will, of that one particular variety will bloom at the same time. The Jedi would never stand for this. Ah, yes. Not so natural, I believe. <laughs> There's been a disturbance in the force. But the Empire, <laughs> we will strike them back. <laughs> well, catch them while you can, uh, the cherry blossoms here in Japan. And that's all for this week's edition of Grok Science. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok Science, email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you see us on the web, www.groks.net. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.